Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Well, welcome to Foothills Christian Church. If you don't know me, just call me Doug. I'm glad to be here. I've been here Oh, over 25 years, and it is a joy to be here. And I would like to welcome everybody who might be visiting for the first time. Maybe you're watching online, doing church at home, or maybe here on campus. And I just like to uh, point out I think you found something special over the last year. We have found that because of COVID and everything, is that, you know, shallow living just doesn't really work for people. And we need real answers to real questions, specifically why you're here on the face of this planet, and does your life have any value or meaning at all to it? And so we're a place that encourages you to ask questions. We encourage you to think because we want you to own your own faith. Uh, We're not here to give you another religion. We want you to find and discover your faith in Jesus Christ and begin to grow it strong. So grab a hold of it, test it, dig into it, strengthen it, know why you believe what you believe and the foundation on what it means to be a human being and where the meaning and purpose of your life comes from. Now we're in a series called Faith and Science. And the reason why we're in this series is because oftentimes one of the biggest challenges to what it means to be a human being comes from a ideology, a faith-based system, and it's often called naturalism, or it might be called scientific materialism, secular humanism. Commonly, they all fall under one umbrella called atheism, meaning there is no God. And they use science to do it. And so we're going to talk about today how they use science to further their ideology instead of keeping science purely science. A couple stories of some people that I know personally, things that happened to them over the years. Uh, Back in the uh, late 80s, there was a guy named Matt, and he was in the engineering program at Arizona State University. And he had a professor in his structural engineering class who loved to denigrate and put down anybody who believes in the Bible and religious people and Christians in particular. Boy, he did not like Christians at all. On his off time, he ran kind of this uh, atheistic think tank out there. He's really into that. And so each uh, week at some point in the lectures, they were in a big lecture hall, you know, one of those 400-seat tiered ones, you know, with the big rows, and they have the big boards down front and the cameras and all that kind of stuff. And so And one particular day, he got really nasty, you know, and he's saying all these nasty things. And he said towards the end of his discussion, he said, you know what? I think anybody who, you know, uh, believes in the Bible and is a Christian is a world-class beep hole. But he said the real word right there. And so he had had enough. Matt, he just, he gets up, stands up, you know, he's halfway up. He puts his books in his backpack. He zips them up real slowly. You know, know, he's real dramatic about it. He puts his backpack on and he walks down the front instead of out the back, walks across the front. Everybody's like, what's going on? And then finally the professor just sitting there, he's kind of smug. And he says, he says, 
what do you think you're doing? He looks back and he says, I'm going to go read my book on how to be a world-class bleephole because I don't want to end up being like you. And out the door he went. I was like, you go get him, tiger. <laughs> I can tell you about a gal I knew. She was, um, she, she was a fun gal. And what was interesting about her is she's wicked smart. But she was, was I should say, is. Don't ever speak in the past tense. Uh, she's a beautiful gal. She's a cheerleader in, in high school. And she was, you know, real fun and gregarious. And she was in a philosophy class. And, and her professor, she was in there with like 800 freshmen or whatever. And the philosophy guy started the, one of the classes off. And he says, I, I want everybody who believes that the Bible is true to stand up. Okay. And so all these people stood up, you know, like 90% of the class. And then what he did is he just started to... Uh, uh, criticize and tear down everything about the Bible and religious people and faith people and all this kind of stuff. And so people started to sit down, you know. So a few people sat down. Then I know a bunch of other people, they probably sat down because they think there's no way in heaven I'm going to pass this class if I don't sit down. We call that authoritarianism, by the way. And so everybody sat down and there were two people left. It was her and this other guy. And he, one of his legs was starting to buckle a little bit, you know. And she's, but she was just like, you know, I don't care, you know, she's brushing her hair, so like, almost like, I'm just so bored with you, kind of an attitude. And he, he finally stops and he says, why aren't you sitting down like everybody else? And she had a really unique answer. She says, well, it doesn't surprise me that you don't believe any of it's true. She goes, you may not know this, but the Bible is a love letter written from a father to his children. And he said, she said, since you don't understand love, it doesn't surprise me that that's what you get from reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> and out she went. I could tell you about the Marine who uh, got out of the Marine Corps and he went on the GI Bill to class, you know, and of course, everybody in the class are all 18, and he's 24, so he's a little older, and a philosophy professor stands up and starts, you know, ragging on people of the faith, ragging on the military, which that, probably those two together wasn't a good idea, and, uh, and he's, he's just denigrating Christians, and one of the things he did, does is this really infantile and non-rational thing. He stands up on his desk. He says, if there is a God, God, if you're alive, I dare you to knock me off this desk right now. And then he would say, see, God doesn't do that, says Marine. You know, I mean, he's done this for years, got away with this. Marine gets up, walks down there, and just goes, bam, and knocks him right off the thing. And he looks at him and goes, why did you do that? And he says, well, God uses tool, and I'm a tool of God. I could go on and on and on about these stories because they're so often happen. And if you are going to be going to university or you have a son or daughter going to university or you have grandkids that are going to university, I guarantee they will have a story of their own very similar to this. Now, why does this stuff go on? Well, the reason why is because in universities, it's the primary place in which scientific materialists, atheists, naturalists, secular humanists recruit this is their church now where they recruit, and it's mandatory. It doesn't matter what your degree program is, they often do this in general education requirement courses, you see, that you have to take. So because they're there, and we're talking about that, and we're talking about this because what I'm trying to do is say, well, is there really a conflict between science and Christianity, 
Or is it something else going on? And it is something else going on. I, I kind of showed you that the actual structure of what's happening is these three circles. And the first one in the center is science. And science is a discipline of thought, right? It is a process in which you discover facts that can be confirmed through experimentation about the universe in which we live. Now, what's interesting is we've passed on the surface facts, right? Now, a lot of the facts that we're looking at are in quantum mechanics with stuff that's so small, it's so theoretical, they built a, a gabillion dollar uh, accelerator in Lucerne, Switzerland, so they can smash things in that you can't even see into other things that you can't see. And then they, they think about, theoretically, what might happen and then prove whether the theory is right. Or very, very massive things like black holes and the bending of time and gravity. So a lot of this stuff now is all about theoretical physics, quantum mechanics, time, and the thing that drives all of these sciences are mathematics, theoretical math, high, high-level math. And what's happening is this math is trying to be manipulated by these people. And what's happening is these people, these naturalists, these atheists, scientific materialists, they are trying to recruit people out of this. They don't like this, okay? And they're trying to use science, which is a tool, to uh, complete or achieve their ends. And when you go to university, if you don't know this is going on, it can rock your world. It can really upset your faith. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the primary tool that these guys use from here to try to get people out of there. And that tool is called evolution theory or Darwinism. Now, before we talk about it, I want you to understand the Christian perspective or their position, the theistic side, and then I want you to, we're going to talk about what the naturalists, scientific materialists, atheists, and what makes it a little difficult to talk about this is they use, they obfuscate by using all of these different terms, but it's all basically the same stuff, right? And so we're going to talk about theism, then naturalism or atheism, and draw some conclusions, okay? So here's the Christian position. It starts from a, uh, a primary source text in the book of Colossians. Now, if you've been here for a while, you'll know that on occasion what I do is I talk about these passages in the New Testament are like big, gigantic, foundational rocks that everything else is built on. They're principles or concepts. And the main rock in the New Testament is Jesus, right? So there's a few places in the New Testament where it talks about the nature of who Jesus was. One is in Philippians chapter 2. It says, have this attitude in yourself that was like our, in our Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says, even though he existed in the form of God, he did not. And it goes on. It talks about his very nature. Well, another one of these source texts, these primary things, is found in Colossians chapter 1. And it's a big chunk. It starts... Um, uh, in verse uh, 13, and it goes all the way probably to 20 to 21 in that area. But I'm only going to read a couple of verses real quick in this big, powerful package. And here's what I want to read beginning with verse 15. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him or in him... That preposition can be by or in when you uh, interpret it 
from the Greek, for in him all things were created. So all things references the material universe in which we live. Okay, uh, the NIV says all things in heaven and on earth. And the way they defined heaven was everything beyond, okay, the earth. It says whether they be visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him or by him and for him. Then the last verse I'm going to read is 17, which says this, and Jesus, or he, is preeminent. He is before all things. So Paul is saying to the Colossians that Jesus was preeminent before the Big Bang, which started space and time in this reality in which we live. And then he says, and in him, all things hold together. So just think for a moment, if you're reading this passage of Scripture, when you're first, you know, in the first and second century, when it was illegal to be a Christian, and so it kind of, not a lot of people believed in Jesus and who he was. But let's just say a few centuries go by, another, you know, bunches of centuries go by, and everybody around you has accepted this as true, their followers, you know, some are good, some are not so good, some are on the fence, but pretty much everybody kind of agrees. So you go back and you read this verse, and then you start thinking some new things about it. Instead of just trying to convince people, oh, Jesus is real as opposed to Zeus, you know, or Apollo, what you're doing is you're saying, what does this mean now for the world in which we live? And this is when these people came up with this notion, and this is the basic premise. These people who wrote this lived with Jesus, they ate with Jesus. They slept with Jesus. They smelled Jesus. And so, guess what? If God were to become human, then maybe the natural world we live in isn't evil or bad. Now, you see, this is really interesting because ancient Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, a bunch of others, Aristippus, and the list goes on and on and on, Epicurus, they all believed that there was this ideal spiritual realm, and then the physical realm was just like a, a, a poor shadow of it, you know? It was like, a, like, you know, your shadow on the street is just like a two-dimensional thing, you know, with no color. And so they didn't really like it that much. It wasn't that big a deal. And if you wanted to pursue truth, you kind of had to get rid of it or not ignore it. These guys come along and go, wait a second, was it Jesus material? Wasn't he fleshly and didn't he eat and sleep? And so maybe this world in which we live is not so bad. As a matter of fact, maybe it's a beautiful and wonderful thing, this creation that God made. And if he made it and it was all made by him and for him and through him and he holds it all together, that means he designed it. And whenever you look at someone who designed something, you look at what they built and it tells you a whole lot about who designed it, right? And so they're like, guess what? That means there's a designer. Now, we don't know how he did it, but boy, if we could just start thinking about it and exploring it, wouldn't that be awesome? And last week I talked about that was the birth of the scientific revolution in Western civilization because of Christianity, not in spite of it. Now, for a long time, scientific materialists, atheists, secular humanists, naturalists, have tried to argue that 
Anytime you say that the world is designed, it is a religious thing. And we'll talk about why they say that in a moment. And so for the longest time, anybody who even mentioned it would get fired from their job. I have a list of people that have been fired from their positions in the science community simply because they published an article by somebody else who believed that the world had a designer. Isn't that amazing? But today, it is, the evidence is becoming so overwhelming, more and more scientists are starting to speak out about it. Watch this. As a scientist, scientist, microbiologist, biochemist, biochemist, as a geologist, neuroscientist, physician, biologist, and an engineer, I think there is overwhelming evidence for intelligent design in nature. I see intelligent design in the history of life, in the genetic code of life, in the molecular machines inside our cells, in the complexity of life, in the information embedded in living things, in the operation of the human brain, in the features of the human body, in the chicken and egg causal circularity of life. As a mathematician, I see great evidence of purpose in the universe. As a molecular biologist, I see evidence for design everywhere I look, pretty much. Nature is incomprehensible without inference to purpose and to intelligent design. The properties of the universe as a whole and our planet in particular, were fine-tuned for our benefit and for our survival. In my view, the fossil evidence clearly points to its intelligent design. I see life as designed because when I look at life at the molecular level, I see exquisite engineering. All cells contain DNA, which include lots of information, and information is only the product of a mind. Darwin thought living cells were just blobs of jelly, but when I look in a living cell, I see evidence of factories, machines, uh, three-dimensional architectures, enormous amounts of encoded information. There's power generators, there's manufacturing plants. Life contains many features that we know from experience only arise from the activity of intelligent agents. The genetic code is like a software program. It's like somebody would have had to be a coder, would have had to form this particular genetic code. When I see that, order and design, I have a really hard time believing that random mutation and natural selection alone can cause uh, the complexity and the diversity we see in life. When you look at nature at large, what you see is incredible examples of innovation which surpass human technology. Examples include the flight capabilities of a hummingbird, sonar and bats, and greater innovation always implies greater intelligence from a designer. If you read the message from the molecules, it's really clear. They say clearly, intelligent design, intelligent design, intelligent design is the source of life. So the question now becomes, if more and more scientists are buying it, and it's predominantly driven by theoretical mathematicians, is why are atheists, why are scientific materialists, naturalists, secular humanists so opposed to this notion that maybe the world was designed, and it was designed perfectly for human life? 
Well, I want to explain to you why it is. And I want to show you the atheistic position. And I want to point out something that uh, will really challenge any atheist. And that is how irrational their position really is. And here's what it is. The material universe, this is premise one, material universe is all that exists. There's nothing beyond the material universe. There's no spirit. There's no spiritual dimension. There's none of these other types of things. Einstein even postulated that human beings, because the universe is material, are all predetermined in every decision that they make. There's no freedom of will. Of course, Heisenberg came along and challenged that with his uncertainty principle. The pre second premise is this. Okay, so first of all, you're making a huge assumption on this premise right here. You know what that assumption is? Science is the arbiter of all truth, right? But last week we talked about there's a whole boatload of things that science doesn't prove. And some of the things that science doesn't prove first and foremost are things like mathematics and logic. Science cannot prove that those things exist. It's interesting. Science can't prove consciousness. Science can't prove love, morality, or any of the virtues. And so what's really fascinating is that, well, how do you know those things exist? Well, you know they exist through history. You know that they exist through logic. You know they exist through philosophy and metaphysics and all these other disciplines. Of course, scientific materialists reject all those all those disciplines. They don't believe. They don't believe in philosophy or logic. And I, they'll, they'll argue with me when I say that. But let me point out that their behavior is proof enough. The material universe is all that exists is an unprovable scientific postulate. So that is not rational. Number two, this is what's interesting. The probability that it developed into what we have today through evolution exists, okay? So this is interesting. They're not saying we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that it has. All we're saying is the probability that it could happen exists. Therefore, it proves there is no God. And I look at that and I read that and I go, my five-year-old would argue that way. There's no logic to it. It's every premise is irrefutable. And what, where's the logical flow? There's no logical flow to that at all. Uh, syllogisms and logic are critical, and they need to be simple and elegant. Here's a classic one from Philosophy 101, and that is, is that all human beings die. Okay, is that a provable premise? Yes. Socrates is a human being. Is that a provable premise? Yes. Therefore, the conclusion is Socrates must die. See, that simple flow of logic, that makes perfect sense. Here's one, let me try it this way. You're single, okay? And you're thinking you'd like to get, how about a boyfriend, ladies, right? Okay. Um, a boyfriend is good. All boys are dumb. Therefore, my boyfriend must be dumb. You don't like that one? Okay. We could do one with cats. No, I won't go there. That would be a real problem for me. Um, 
But no, I, I'm trying to just point out the insipid irrationality of this. And yet the leading atheists today who try to use atheism and science to prove that God doesn't exist use this argument all the time. It just makes zero sense. Uh, case in point, I want to show you a couple of things that are out there that are very popular New York Times bestsellers. Number one is this. Uh, it's called The Grand Design, all right, written by Stephen Hawking. He is the theoretical physicist at Cambridge University. He's very popular. They made a movie about his life. And Leonard Mladenov, who's a Russian, and he is a, uh, I believe, a physicist in California. And they wrote this book together called The Grand Design. And in the book, they immediately claim right off the top that cosmology has proven there is no God. There's no designer of the universe. They then go on to say, the reason we know this is because... Uh, philosophy as a discipline is dead, which I always find really kind of funny because philosophy is just simply the notion of how you know something is true or false. So they say, well, we're not going to test our theory to be true or false. We're just going to say philosophy is dead. And then what they do is they turn around and try to make a whole bunch of philosophical statements about why they're right. I was like, what are you doing? It's so bad, so bad that Stephen Hawking's peer a, year, a friend of his in the science department at Cambridge for over 40 years was asked to comment on this book, and this is what he said about his good friend Stephen Hawking. His name is Sir Martin Rees. You know you're important in England when they put Sir in front of your name, right? Sir Martin Rees, Institute of Astronomy of Cambridge and the Astronomer Royal of Great Britain, said this about Hawking and Mladenov's book, and I quote, Stephen Hawking is a remarkable person whom I have known for 40 years. And for that reason, any statement he makes gets exaggerated publicity. I know Stephen Hawking well enough to know he has read very little philosophy and even less theology. So I don't think we attach any weight to his views on this topic. <laughs> That's called being left out, right? It's like, he got ghosted or shaded or something or other, I don't know, by this guy. I'm working on my, uh, my contemporary slang. It's not very good. Um, so, so the point is in this book is that it's completely illogical. And the problem is, is somebody who doesn't think for themselves will read that book and go, well, he says cosmology proves there is no God, so there must not be. You know? Well, I have to believe it because all the culture says it's true, Right? You know, and this is where my mom used to say to me all the time, well, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off too? <laughs> yeah, if I was accepted and could be a part of it, yeah, you know. But, but that's how that works. And so this is just not true. Another one, this, this book was written after this book by uh, Richard Dawkins, and it's called The Blind Watchmaker. And it, uh, he wrote a, a book after this one. This was the, kind of the first one. And then he wrote a book called The God Delusion, where he just basically, it's a bitter diatribe against people of faith. And um, it's really pretty, it's, it's a, The God Delusion is just a terrible book. It's not, it's not worth reading. Uh, but this book is actually a pretty good book, I think. It really tried to contribute to the, the notion. But uh, some of the things he did well, his conclusions, though, were, were interesting nonetheless. And this is what he wrote in this book about scientific materialism and evolution. 
All appearances to the contrary, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. Now, he included that little phrase there because theoretical mathematicians are all starting to just tear his position apart because <laughs> they're saying the math on how perfect this universe has to be in order to support life is unbelievable, okay? One of the things they, they teach as a mathematician, he says, look, if you take 1 or 10 to the 28th power, that means it has 28 zeros after it, right? He says, if you change just one of those things at that level of probability, zero life. And that number is so big and so massive, you can't even process it in your house. It's so big, our government can't even spend that amount of money. <laughs> you know it's big then, don't you? So, but he says, look, a true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and his springs and their inner connections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection is blind. The automatic process Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. That's very important. There is no purpose to your life. There's no purpose to life at all. It has no mind, so you have no mind. It has no mind's eye, so you have no sense of any future for your life or, or, or the material world or life on this planet. It has nothing like that. Listen to this. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision. It has no foresight. It has no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watch maker. Now, you see what he's saying is that if this is all that exists and this means it's all blind, there's no mind, there's no purpose, there's no intent, that actually has ramifications that many people forget about. Now, I want to back up here and give you a little context, and that is, is that over the last 50 years, every single one of us in American society has been trained to be a postmodern deconstructionist. We actually just think that way naturally. You know, you go to buy uh, uh, some food, you know, in the fridge or at, at Winco or Albertsons or Fred Meyer or whatever, and you're going through and you're looking at it. You know, it might be bacon or something. You look at the bacon pack, and I don't know about you guys, but when I look at the bacon pack, I want that little window in there because I want to see how much white and how much red stuff's in that bacon. That's a, you know, if you're a bacon connoisseur, you're tracking with me right now, right? You know, and what do you do if there's like, not enough or sick, you go, oh, I don't want that one. I want something else. See, I use deconstructionism in the way I was thinking. I was skeptical about that. When, when ladies, you go out with boys, you know, you're dating a guy, you know, and you're thinking, you know, well, is this a red flag? Is that a red flag? I need a red flag. Is this a red flag? Is that a red flag? Well, no guy's perfect and stuff. And then you go tell your girlfriends and your girlfriends are sitting around going, look, this is the 400th guy that you've gone out with and nobody ever lives up to your standards. We think your standards are too what? Hi, you're living in what land? Fantasy land, right? Well, what does that mean? You're using deconstructionism to find a thing. We could go on and on and on about how this works. But here's the problem with deconstructionism is no one ever deconstructs their own deconstructionism. <laughs> if you're skeptical, no one is ever skeptical of their skepticism. 
See, that gal's girlfriends are telling her, you know what? You're never going to find love. You're never going to be in love until you figure out what real love is all about. And it's not finding the perfect guy. It's about learning how to love a real human being. See, when we don't get that, and that's what's happening here, because there's implications to believing that. And when you believe this, you by automatic are believing something else. What are you believing? Here's what you're believing. In this book, this guy, uh, he wrote a book called um, The Atheist Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. He's, had a, he's one of the top uh, philosophy professors at Duke University. So I'm not quoting people and showing you people who are like out on the fringe that writes books on Amazon that sell five books. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about people who are New York Times bestsellers, people who are at top universities, running top departments, have immense influence in training minds of people when they go to university. And he wrote a book in here, The Atheist Guide to Reality. And what's really fascinating about it is he says, when you buy into scientific materialism, this is what you're actually believing. You're not, you're, you're not just saying, well, I can't believe there's a designer. I'm believing that the material world is all there is. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. Number one is, according to Dr. Rosenberg, that if scientific materialism is true, there is no intentional state of mind. Now you're like, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, you got to read through, you know, the philosophical mumble jumble, blah, 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 to get to it. But basically what he's saying is that any thought that you have is not a real thought. You just think it is. Okay, how does that work? Look, it's a fake thing. Your thoughts in your brain are fake. They don't really exist because there's no intentional thought. All that's happening are synapses down neural pathways that are happening in your brain that have been formed over your life. So guess what? If scientific materialism truths, then no thoughts are real. There's only one problem with his conclusion or when he says that. I'm thinking about what you're saying right now. Isn't that a refutation of your point? You see, if scientific naturalism is true, then thoughts aren't true, but that statement is something you have to think about. See how illogical this gets so quick. If scientific materialism is true, according to him, then no sentence has meaning. Because if there's no intentional thoughts, then there's no meaning in the words that we use. Now, on a practical level, you see this all the time in our culture today. Words that used to mean one thing are now meaning something else. And now we've got words that are so twisted and upside down, it's like, I have no idea what you're talking about because what you think these words means don't mean what I, you know. When, uh, this is controversial, but I'll say it anyway. Um, you know, if you go out and you're breaking windows and burning down buildings, I call that a riot. That's what I call that, right? I don't, you know, my idea of when you don't like something, you, you paint your message on a card and you stand there and yell at people, you know, well, that's fine. But those are two different things. And so I, that's what's happening in our world each and every day. The whole notion is, well, what's a male and what's a female, I, uh, we, we've twisted words so much because of this type of ideology in our universities that we can't, e we can't even say what that is anymore without being fired from your job. See, people who say to me, oh, pastor, it's so ethereal, it's so theoretical, it doesn't have anything to do with everyday life. Really? Because you're living it right now, and this is where it came from, right here. 
You see, if scientific materialism is true, then no sentence has meaning. But the fact that you say no sentence has meaning is a meaningful sentence. <laughs> Jeez, give me a break. It's so illogical and so irrational. If scientific materialism is true, then all truth is no different than all falsehood. So it's all meaningless. But that phrase itself is a statement of truth. So you're, it's meaningless. It's like the people who say, well, there is no absolute truth. And I'm, it's like, okay, stop. Before we go any further, think about what you just said. You just said there's no absolute truth, which is an absolute statement, which contradicts what you just said. I'm not that smart, but I'm certainly not that dumb to believe that. If scientific materialism true, then there are no moral objectives uh, or objective duties. That's where we're really seeing it today, is that objective morals and duties don't exist. There's no rational basis for any right or wrong. Here, here's, a, here's a famous one. Um, uh, Penn Jillette, the uh, magician, he, he does this thing. Uh, you'll see a lot of young guys get on YouTube. Number one viewer or user of YouTube is men between the ages of 18 and 34. Penn Jillette does all these things called the big think, and he's on there. And what he does is, is he talks about this. Um, he quotes a theoretical physicist, and this guy says, it's a common quote that's passed around all the time, and it basically goes like this. He says, well, good people do good things, and bad people do bad things, but it takes religion to get good things people to do bad things. And his point is, is that religion is the basis that gets people who are good to do bad things. Of course, when you actually think about what he said, you realize how overwhelmingly stupid it is. So even though he has a lot of degrees after his name, I think he's not very smart. Because the bottom line is, is that it's atheism and the lack of faith and the lack of belief in a God that brought us the most horrific body count and the death of human beings in all of history combined, and that's called the 20th century. It started in the Bolshevik Revolution with uh, Stalin, and then after that, came, uh, Lenin came along, and in the process, Lenin starved to death in the 30s over 20 million Ukrainians because he didn't like them. Ukraine was a breadbasket of all Soviet Russia, they produced enough food to feed everybody. And so what he did is he went in and he took all their food, took all of it, took it away, and then let them starve to death over a year period, over 20 million people. In World War II, there was Adolf Hitler, who was an atheist. He was a fascist. He was a nationalist. He killed over 15 million people in concentration camps. Over 7 million of them were Jews simply because they were Jewish Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution, some, they, they don't even know in the, in the 50s and 60s, but they believe it's somewhere between 30 million and 70 million Chinese people killed during the Cultural Revolution. Khmer Rouge killed half of their population of Cambodia, 3 million people out of 6 million people. They call it the killing fields. You see, Atheism loves to point out some of the flaws of religion, which I say there's many. And I even talked about that last week about religious superstition, how that's bad for science. 
But what, what they're really doing, though, in that what this guy is saying is completely ignorant of history. Because in the bottom line is, is that all it takes is the religion of no God to wreak the most horrific thing you could ever imagine on the human race. And that's exactly what history has taught us. You see, if scientific materialism is true, then in the end, nothing is true. And when nothing is true, that makes everything, even the most horrific things, possible. So what are my conclusions today that I'd like you to take? And that is this. Number one is atheism is not good for science. Atheism destroys science because what, at its core, it believes that everything that makes you a human being, the thing that gives you a soul, that gives your life meaning and purpose and hope and love, all that stuff, none of that exists. So why study it? You know, why, why study something that makes no difference? Atheism destroys scientific inquiry. It destroys innovation. It destroys advancement. Why? Because it bleeds the motivation and inspiration out of it. There's no design. There's no wonderful new thing to discover that's going to make the world a better place because the world and the people in it is irrelevant. There's no purpose and there is no meaning. So my friend, what I would like you to do in your conversations, is not believe when you talk to other people or if you're talking to a child or a grandchild, is don't allow them to believe the world when the world says that there is no rational basis for your faith. Say, the most irrational thing is the belief that there is no God. Do not believe the world when it says to you that evolution proves there is no God. Now, it's interesting. Notice how I didn't do a comparison about evolution and creationism today. Because if you're a Christian, evolution could be true or not be true. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of really great Christian people that believe that's the way, that was the tool God used to create. He's the designer, and that's a tool he used to design. There's a lot of other people say, no, it doesn't fit. There's so many holes in it. Mathematically, it's just this foggy room that doesn't make any sense. There's no clarity of definition. And those people are right too. But what my point is, is that it doesn't matter because whether God did it or not and how he did it is irrelevant to whether God created it and whether we believe he is the objective truth that brings our life meaning and purpose. It's a scientific materialist who has to live or die on its truth. And so all you have to do is point out, use his tactic against him and be a little deconstructionist. Just point out one flaw and you've won. My friends, the reason I'm doing this and the reason I do this is not because uh, it's something I think about. And so I like to torture you with the crazy thoughts that run through my head all the time. <laughs> is that what being a good pastor is about? No, I'm joke. That's a joke. Um, it's not a joke that I am weird in my thinking. That's not a joke. Uh, ask Pastor Harv, he'll confirm that. Um, but I think really why I'm doing this is because at its core, when you strip it all away, the most important thing is that you do not need a religion. You need a faith. You don't need more things to do. You need things to believe because what you believe is one of the most important things about who you are. You need a faith. You need a reason for your existence in order to know who you are as a human being. And only then will you understand and know your purpose in life. And that's what I want from you or for you. 
is that you can discover who you're meant to be and why your life matters. So never, ever let anybody talk you out of the veracity and the rationality of your faith in Jesus Christ because it is the only truth that can only bring you knowledge of who you are and why you're here. Let's listen. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.